Amen. I don't know about better, Dave, but taller, Dave. Maybe more realistic. I'm not the tallest Dave in this church, though. eh? Dave Hobson's around somewhere. He puts us all the other days to shame. But yeah, um, it's uh, it's really nice to be able to share with you guys this morning. It's been a while, and uh, we're going to continue our theme of of uh, vineyard values this morning. And I want to just start off by putting it out there that as a movement, we don't have the monopoly on on any of these values that we're talking about. In fact, there are probably churches and move and, and movements out there that um, are implementing or applying these these principles or variants thereof more effectively than us. And um, from the get-go, I want to say, may that be an an inspiration to us. It's not a competition. And uh, may we keep our eyes fixed on the Father who waits for us at the end of our lane, um, as opposed to those running alongside us. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we talk about values. But it's really... uh, it's important to, to talk about what we stand for because it's been said before, um, if we want to know w- w- where we are right now and, and where God might be leading us, it's really important that we know where we, where we come from. That's why history in general is so important. What are, what are the, the things that, that birthed our movement? What are our foundational beliefs? And... Um, you know, I've been thinking about it myself, like why have I spent over half my life in the vineyard? You know, um, what brought me here? Why have I thrown my lot in with you lot, you know? And so I want to, I want to talk today about um, being radical, normal people. And what that looks like and, and, and how it can play out. I was praying in my quiet time a, a few weeks ago, wrestling with some, some things, and, um, and this, this phrase dropped into my spirit, and it was, I might not have it all together, but I have you. I might not have it all together, but I have you. And um, at that uh, stage, I was uh, just uh, using my utmost for his highest as a, as a devotional. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. That's an anointed devotional, by the way. Oswald Chambers, wow. And I opened it up to, to that day, and the verse for the day was Hebrews 13.5, and it's, it's Jesus saying, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And I just thought, wow, that was just such confirmation of what I just received, you know, that, that he will never leave me, he'll never forsake me, he's always with me. I might have it all messed up, but I have him. And... Um, as I always do, I kind of proceeded to, to read the text on, on, on either side of that scripture just to try and get some context. And, and what came out in that, that Hebrews 13 chapter was just so profound, and I really thought that God was on it, and, and it was really in line with what I had been thinking, what I'd like to share with you guys. So why don't we take a look at Hebrews 13, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through to 17. Okay. So let's read together. It says, Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. 
Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, God is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to you? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods which are of no value for those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us go then to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For yeah, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is yet to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you're looking for a, a passage of Scripture that details values that we as, as Christ followers um, should be cultivating, I think this is up there with the best of them. And um, I compiled a, a list. It's by no means complete, but just a list of some of those values based on this Scripture. So I'm quickly going to read them out for you. Love for each other, verse 1. Hospitality, verse 2. Helping those who suffer, verse 3. Marital faithfulness, verse 4. Godly contentment, as opposed to desiring the things of this world, verse 5. Courageous living, verse 6. Honoring our leaders, verse 7 and 17. Grace-based expression of our faith as opposed to being bound to the law, verse 9. The willingness to suffer for our beliefs, verse 12 to 13. Placing our hope in the eternal as opposed to placing it in the world, verse 14. Living our lives as an act of worship, verse 15. And um, David Skev talked about the value of worship two weeks ago when he kicked the series off. Blessing those in need, verse 16. John Wimber said that serving the poor isn't an option. If we don't care for the poor, we're as good as dead. I see it as a life and death matter. That's one of our values in the vineyard, serving the poor. And for me, these, these values of, are, are all elements of what I believe is, 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 is an intrinsic value of the, the vineyard, and that's radical living, radical living, or what I will call being a normal radical. We're all called to be normal radicals. It sounds like a bit of an oxymoron. And it brings me actually to the verse that I, that I mentioned already that encompasses all the previous ones, and that's in verse 5 and 6. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can mere mortals do to me? This verse is a call to radical living. 
The new historian uh, Bill Jackson used the phrase the radical middle to describe the vineyard movement um, in his book The Quest for the Radical Middle. I'm sure some of you have read it. If you really want a, a good resource on, on, on where our roots are, it's a really, a really useful book. And um, the radical middle that he refers to um, is, is, is the middle of a few things. It's the it's a kingdom tension between the, the now and the not yet. It's the tension between the biblical focus of the evangelical church and the spiritual focus of the charismatic church. It's the tension between um, organized church and the more mystical elements of our faith, and probably a few other tensions as well. John Wimber himself was a very radical person. You know, if we listen to people like... Um, Dave's met him, Dave will tell you, people like Eleanor Mumford who shared here last year, just like meeting him and just very radical person, you know, definitely a, a radical normal. And the word radical has, has a lot of neg negative connotations in today's um, society of what I call toxic wokeness. Um, people tend to associate it with, with extremism or fundamentalism. You know, I believe that inclusion at any cost is, is, is one of the golden calves of our society. And, and um, in that context, the word radical maybe looks like exclusivity or exclusion. But I think that um, it's really important that we actually relook at the word radical and what that means in the context of our faith. The word comes from the Latin word radicalis, and it actually refers to... Um, the root of a plant. It's the radical, the radicalis, and, and, it, and it refers to change from the root up. Change from the root up. I really like that because it also ties in with a, another phrase that came into my spirit actually while David was preaching two weeks ago. And it was, it's not about movements. It's about individuals. Enduring change doesn't come from the top down can't be forced from the top down. It, it only comes from the bottom up if it's real change, if it's enduring change. It comes from the roots up. And that's where we get the phrase a grassroots movement, for instance. It's healthy roots that produce healthy plants, and not the other way around. It's the healthy roots that produce the healthy fruit. And it's therefore changed individuals that produce changed communities. That song we sang just now, Greater Things Are Yet to Come in the City, that's only going to change if we change as people. Not the other way around. We're not going to suddenly have this great city and then the people are going to be great. It happens the other way around. You know, these days there are movements for, for everything. Go onto Facebook and there's 100 movements you can sign up for. But signing up for something or liking a page actually doesn't do anything for you. Um, it only actually gives the founders of the movement more power. Real change has to start from within, and thereby live, radical living also starts from within. And there's no doubt about it, radical people change the world, for better or for worse, right? We've seen that in history. If we look at the Bible, it's full of radical characters. Um, I mean, just a few. Moses, for instance. He had to go and build this thing called a boat. No one knew what a boat was. But he had to build this boat thing in the middle of a desert. Noah, there we go. Someone's awake. 
That's my mom. Thanks, mom. He was a radical, and, and God told him, build this boat in the desert. And, um, you know, he, he did it. He, he had to count the cost. He had to count how long it was going to take, what people thought of him, but he, he went through with it. That was a radical act. Abraham, another radical, God said to him, go and murder, go and kill your, go and sacrifice, I guess, your only son. And um, his knife was, was at Isaac's throat, ready. And God intervened at the 11th hour. That was a radical thing. I mean, we read about it, but if you really think about it, it's very, very radical. Uh, people like David and Esther and Daniel, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, all radicals. If you want to read about them, go and read about them in two uh, chapters earlier in uh, Hebrews 11. Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus, the ultimate radical. And um, if we say that we, we follow in Jesus, then whether we like it or not, radical living is a part of that. It's a natural extension of our faith. What does that look like? Well, I think in, it's really important to see what Jesus says about that. And a, a great um, guideline is, is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. I don't have time to read it all right now, but I, it's such a great exercise if you, if you really want to get an idea of it. Just slowly in the next week or two, just take it verse by verse and actually read through Matthew 5 verse 7. It's, it's a manifesto towards radical living. And so, I, again, just jotted down a few aspects of radical living from, from, from the Sermon on the Mount. What does that look like? It looks like humility. It looks like being meek. It looks like personal righteousness, having a strong sense of justice for the oppressed. And a lot of these um, values are similar to the ones that we just read about in, in Hebrews 13. Being merciful, purity, being a peacemaker, being willing to be persecuted for your beliefs, counting the cost, being an agent of change, being an agent of reconciliation, marital commitment, being people who speak the truth, being willing to be insulted or treated unjustly, giving to the poor, loving your enemies, doing your righteous acts in secret that only God sees, as opposed to our influences that just uh, splurge everything over the internet, including the fact that they brushed their teeth today. It's amazing. Do those things in secret. Only God has to see. Forgiveness, fasting, simple living, not being held captive by your possessions or, or controlled by money. Freedom from worry. Being non-judgmental. Having faith in God to provide for, for your needs. Your needs, eh? Not your wants. Your needs. It's a life that is walked along the difficult path, the narrow way, and not the, the easy one. It's, it's, it's an unconventional life. Discernment. The pursuit of authentic relationship with God. Really being passionate about knowing Him. And letting Him be the foundation of everything we do. And it's being focused on his kingdom and, and not our own. 
And so that's quite dif- different to, I think, what radical looks like in the worldly sense. Don't you agree? Radical living as a Christ follower doesn't mean that you, that you impose or enforce yourself on others. It actually requires you to quietly live out your convictions. It's, it's rooted in, in, in humility, not in arrogance. It's living not by manipulation or manipulating others, but through inspiration and inspiring other people. It's not through brainwashing or, or groupthink. And it's, it's, it's living not by, by obligation, but by invitation. It's an invitation for others to, to come in, not obligation. I've said it from, from this platform before, I really hate the word mediocrity. Um, it speaks to me of, of timidity and, and passivity, and one of the reasons it cuts me so deep is because I see so much of it in my own life. That's a confession right there. Um, I'm 42 right now, and um, yeah, to be honest with you, I'm in a little bit of a midlife, I'm going to call it a midlife moment, I'm not going to call it a midlife crisis, <laughs> but um, I'm just questioning so many things at the moment as a result. Um, it reminds me, Duncan was, was playing with a, another little boy uh, a week ago, we were at a restaurant, and I was, I was watching them, and I heard this little kid ask him, is that your grandpa? He's like, no, that's my dad. He's like, you look so old. It's like, gee, midlife moment right there. Thank you, Lord. Amen. But, but in the midst of this, I'm asking myself, why does my life look so mediocre? You know? Maybe you're asking yourselves these things as well. What's, what's the point of working so hard and yet feeling un, so unfulfilled? What am I being driven by? Is it success or is it significance? Because those are two very different things. Is it success or is it significance? What happened to the passion that I, that I used to have once? And... I think that, that movements, and including church movements, especially church movements, we tend to go through the same crisis. In the beginning, it starts off as something new and fresh and exciting. John Wimber also said that, that, that one of our values is that everybody gets to play. In the beginning, everybody wants to play. They want to be part of this thing. It's exciting. Everybody has to play because there's no one else to do it. If you don't do it, no one else is going to do it. But over time, it becomes more structured and organized and strategic. And we have committees and subcommittees and subcommittees of subcommittees. You've got people that, that, that come in that don't grasp the original heart behind it. You know, they don't, they don't grasp that original vision. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just what happens. And people become mediocre. And we become codependent on leadership. And our culture of, of, of uh, narcissism and consumerism and instant gratification, I think, just aggravate this problem. Henry David uh, Thoreau said that the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. And I think that's like how many of us feel in church sometimes, you know. Um, and I was reminded of, 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 of Revelation 2, verse uh, 2 to 4, where Jesus is saying to the church in, in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, 
and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So he's essentially saying everything looks great on the outside. You know, you're doing this stuff. But there's a problem. You've forsaken your first love. You've forgotten the reason why you started meeting together in the first place. And you've forgotten why you're doing what, what you're doing, what your motivation is. As, as radical Christ followers, we have to pursue Jesus. That's our first love. And, and the pursuit of Jesus means pursuing intimacy with him. It has to start with intimacy. It has to start in the roots, in our very core. He's got to be the reason that we are who we are and we do what we do. Nothing else. If I say anything today, that's what I'd like to leave with you. Intimacy with him has to be birthed in individuals before it becomes synonymous with a movement. In John 15, Jesus tells us a few times, remain in me, remain in my love. Intimacy with Jesus is the most important fuel for radical living. That's what radical living looks like. Acts 17, 28, God says, in him we live and breathe and have our being. It's in him. Life is in him. Meaning is in him. There's also another very important element to radical living um, that I found in Hebrews 13. And um, it's in verses 10 to 13. I'm quickly going to read that again. It says, We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us go then to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Can you guys see what is happening here? There's a move away from the ceremonial, priest-led, um, atonement, sacrificial model of faith. And the author is saying that the days of God residing in the temple, and before that the, the Ark of the Covenant, are over. Jesus changed all that. It's a very radical thing to say in those days. Something that we take for granted. Because that was their context. And so he's saying, no longer are animals slaughtered to atone for sin on the, the altar inside the temple grounds. Because Jesus wasn't sacrificed at the altar. It wasn't a ceremonial sacrifice performed by a priest. He was killed by Roman soldiers. He died on a hillside alongside a dusty street surrounded by criminals. And he, it was in plain sight for everyone to see. Another of John Wimber's sayings was, the meat is on the street. And he was saying it in reference to 1 Corinthians 3, 2, where Paul's talking to the Corinthians um, about still being on milk and not being ready for the meat that he wants to impart to them. And so what Wimber meant was that if we want to grow and mature, if we want to move from milk to meat, it's not going to happen inside the church building. 
We've actually got to go out to the street. The meat is on the street. That's where we're going to grow. That's where we're going to mature. But when I read this text in, in, in Hebrews 13, 10 to 13, the meat is on the street took on a whole new meaning for me. The sacrificial lamb is not to be found on the altar. The lamb was sacrificed outside in the street, right? And so without trying to sound sacrilegious, we can also say that the meat with a capital M is on the street. Jesus is on the street. That's what the author is saying. The essence of, of who he is is not found inside the temple. It's found on the street. That's where we're going to find him. I, I hear people say that you know, they're not growing in this or that church. And I don't actually think you can lay the blame at the, at the feet of the church. In Fountain, we say that, that we're a family, a place to belong. We're a, a school, a place to learn. We're um, a hospital, a place where we can get healed up. And we're an army, a place where we can be equipped to go out. But the onus is on us to mature as, as, as people. The leaders cannot do that for us. We can only grow outside these four walls. So our leader's job is to, is to nurture us with milk and then boot us out of the nest because that's the only way that we're going to learn to fly. I remember um, being at university, and um, in university I was able to be trained and, and develop my skills up to a certain point, but, but the real skill development and training and, 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 and nurturing of my career took place once I left university and still continues to take place. That's why it's a practice. And um, the guys that, that stayed behind became academics with these fancy titles, and, and um, which was good, but I personally feel like a lot of them had little to no idea of what life was really like in the outside world, you know? And for me, the best lecturers were always the ones that had had success outside of the university and then come back into academia because they had that, they had that, that background. And so um, when, when Wimba said the meat is on the street, he was basically saying, go, you've got to leave the institution, you've got to leave the university, you've got to go. And he was only echoing what Jesus was saying in Matthew 28, 19, when he commissioned us, go, not invite in, go out. It's been said a lot, and it's a cliche, but it's true. We grow when we go. He's got some, some, some more words to that effect in, in Acts 1.8. It's his last words before he ascended. And it says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And again, it's a call to go. Go to your street, your city, your workplace, your country, throughout the earth. As what? A, a full-time missionary or a volunteer or an evangelist? Perhaps, yes. Some people are called to that, and that's great. But that's only a, that's a, that's a few. In the main, we go as a witness. And that's all of us, because what's a witness? A witness is merely someone who relates to others what Christ is doing in their lives. And that's not always even a verbal thing, just through the way that we live our lives even. That's what we're called to do. And that's radical living. And living like that is one of the ways that we stay radical for Jesus. 
And so we go out to the street because that's what Jesus modeled for us, not only in his life, but also in his death. Is the street a safe place? Is it um, an easy place? Is it a nice place? No. No. But Jesus is there. And so unless you go, you're never going to really obtain significance, I don't believe. Um, you might be successful, but never significant. You might be successful, but live a life of quiet desperation, of, of, of mediocrity. Saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to a life of radical living, and that means saying yes to hardship and suffering. It means having to step out and walk on water. And um, that also means that you're often going to be out of your depths, you know. But you're never alone. Jesus tells us in the verse, after he commissions his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, he says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Never, never alone. It means being judged and misunderstood, perhaps. But... In radical living, we find joy, love, belonging, purpose, and significance that far surpasses them all. Amen. Um, Mom, you actually had a word for us. Why don't you come up and share it with us? I think one of the greatest benefits of being a Christian is being able to hear what God says to you and to me, that he talks to us in amazing ways. And this morning while we were worshiping, I really just have a word for someone and it was for myself as well. Saw this wonderful army. We are part of a victorious army marching great victory. We, the victory has been won by Jesus and we are busy marching in that, um, in that band. But when the soldiers return, there are many who are very tired there are some um, who have been severely wounded. There are others, you can see their bandages, but they're marching. And so the word came to me today, healing comes through pain. And just to encourage someone here today, keep marching. It's okay if there's some bandages. It's okay if you're tired, but you're part of a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful group that is marching for Jesus. Mm. And I don't think it's important that, that we're not going to get to the end perfect without any scars. If we're following Jesus the way that David's been talking about following the Lord, the ultimate one, he was severely wounded and bruised for our transgressions. And if we're following him, we must be prepared to pick up, to pick up the wounds and to pick up what he was prepared to do for us. And so for myself, I was so grateful just to have that, the, the singing and the thing about the conquerors. We are conquerors, but I think some of us don't always feel that way, and we have got some wounds. I have, I'm sure David has, and I'm sure you have, and you know what? Jesus doesn't mind. Mm. He, never, he never worried about that. He never went to the cross without any pain. He was prepared, in fact, and so I'd like to encourage you today to be prepared. Be prepared to be hurt. Be prepared to be wounded. That's not the ultimate end. Mm. Thank you, Mom. Yeah, why don't we respond to that? Um, 
I think there are a lot of us that, that can maybe identify with that. We are a bit tired and we, we've been bleeding and we've got some, some bandages and, and um, we may be disillusioned. Um, I was also just like wondering this whole thing of going out, you know? Like what does it look like for you? Um, what does it look like for your family? How's it looking that side? How's it looking at home? Uh, or at school, or university. Um, how's it looking at your workplace? I had a very uh, sobering moment with one of my colleagues uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he, he reminded me that um, my main purpose is not about profit. It's about people. It's about the people that I'm working with, and it's about the people that I'm helping. You know, That was a wake-up call for me as well. What's driving me? You know, um, how much of a witness am I in, in, in my work? How much of a witness are you in your work? In the streets, you know, in the traffic. What's your context? I don't know. But I just want you to think about it and, and just let the Holy Spirit just start speaking to you about that. Um, yeah. So why don't we pray together? And... Um, if the Lord's put anything on your heart, why don't you just respond by standing so we can just, um, yeah, just bless you by, by praying with you through these things this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you would um, make us more desperate, more desperate for you, Lord. Make us desperate for you, Father God. That's the cry of our hearts. Would we not be content with small living, Lord? Would we not be content with quiet desperation, Lord? Would we stand up for what we actually want from you, Lord? Because you say ask. May we actually be bold enough this morning to actually stand up and ask you, Lord, I've had enough and this is what I want, this is what I desire, come and help me. Because Jesus, you said that, that we will be empowered by your spirit and then we will go. And so, Father God, I believe that there are people this morning that need to be empowered by your spirit. And when we go, you go with us, you go before us, you make a way, Father. We cannot do this thing in our own strength. Perhaps we've been marching in our own strength and we're tired and we just need a, a fresh uh, energizing, Lord, by you this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. If that's you, why don't you just respond this morning? We wait on you, Lord. Mm. Mm.
Mm. Jesus. Yeah, if there's anyone else that wants to respond, please do so now. And the rest of you guys get to play. By getting to play, you get to pray. So why don't you just stand uh, with some of those that you can see standing and just, just bless them. Just speak to them what the Lord's saying to you. Please don't let anyone be alone in this. So just look around and, and uh, just stand, stand alongside these, these guys, these brothers and sisters, and just pray for them, please. Is there anyone else that's got a word for us that we'd like to share? The Lord prompting you to say anything? Now's the opportunity. Otherwise, let's just carry on with, with uh, the ministry to each other. So, Lord, we just, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your presence. <clears throat> Help us to become normal radicals, Lord. Show each and every one of us what that looks like, Lord. And give us the courage, Lord. Give us the courage that we need to live this out. Would we be people that will go out of this building and find the meat of our faith, out on the street, Father God. I pray that we would encounter people this week in our workplaces, in our schools, in our universities, that we would be able to witness to in a way that we haven't done so before, Father God. Would we come back next Sunday with stories of what you have actually been doing in that context, Lord? We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the, the, the honor and the privilege of suffering with you, Jesus. What a privilege, Lord. But thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Let the, the ministry just continue, and uh, the rest of you can go and get some coffee. And um, thank you guys who watched online as well. Amen. <laughs>